Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the first episode of Season 7. I hope you all had a safe and healthy summer, and it's exciting to be back. We have a fantastic lineup of episodes coming your way. Now, many of our listeners, I'm sure, are aware of the recent events in Afghanistan. The last of the American-led coalition forces vacated the country, and almost unbelievably, it rapidly fell to the Taliban, who are now in power, like they were at the beginning of this century. The rapid collapse of the Afghan National Army and the Western-backed Afghan government has stirred up plenty of debate and discussion within Canada as we seek to make meaning of Canada's contribution to the region and especially try to come to grips with the sacrifices that so many Canadians made both in body and spirit. There are no easy answers and most likely those answers are not comfortable ones. But one of the first steps in understanding any aspect of the present is to try and understand the past. So today, we are going to try and do just that. This is Season 7, Episode 1, The Longest War, A Brief History of Canada in Afghanistan. Now, there is no all-encompassing book on Canada in Afghanistan. Now, I'm sure it's probably being written right now as this podcast is being recorded. But for today, I'm going to recommend two books. The first one is by author and historian Sean Maloney, and it's called Fighting for Afghanistan, a Rogue Historian at War. In this book, Maloney writes on his time as an historian in the country during the first third of Canada's mission there. As well, I will also recommend a book by historian Lee Windsor 
called Kandahar Tour, The Turning Point in Canada's Afghan Mission. Now, this is a well-researched look at Canada's role in the country up to and including 2007. Afghanistan is a complicated country with a long history of resistance to outsiders. In square kilometers, it is only slightly larger than Saskatchewan and is made up of 21 different ethnic groups speaking primarily four languages. The largest of these ethnic groups are the Pashtun people, making up about 40% of the total population. Yet the Pashtuns, like the other ethnic groups, are further divided into clans, many of them hostile to one another, with a long history of blood feuds. In the late 1970s, Afghanistan's central government collapsed, and this precipitated a violent Soviet invasion that lasted for 10 years. After the Soviet withdrawal in 1989, violence continued as warlords, clan leaders, and ethnic groups vied for control. Now, during this chaotic period, a Pakistani-backed religious militia known as the Taliban came to prominence, calling for Afghanistan to be governed under strict Islamic law. By the late 1990s, the Taliban had gained significant support, and by the end of the century, they had secured control of nearly all of the country except for a small portion in the north. One of the Taliban's major supporters and ally was the wealthy Saudi Osama bin Laden, who had been financially supporting the Taliban during their rise to power. When the Taliban came to power, Afghanistan thus became a safe haven for him and his global terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda sought to establish a global caliphate while carrying out a holy war against enemies of Islam with particular emphasis on the West and the United States, who, after 1990, had troops stationed in Saudi Arabia, which was a particular affront to Osama bin Laden. It took American authorities 24 hours to identify that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda were behind the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and were thus operating out of Afghanistan. With the backing of the United Nations and NATO, which invoked Article 5 for the first time in the organization's existence, Article 5 is the concept of an attack against one is an attack against all. Backed by NATO, backed by the United Nations, the U.S. demanded that the Taliban hand over bin Laden and disband al-Qaeda's training camps. When the Taliban's leader, Mullah Omar, refused, a joint American-British offensive was launched. In cooperation with an alliance of northern Afghan tribes, the last holdouts to the Taliban regime, this offensive smashed both the Taliban and al-Qaeda. By November, the capital city of Kabul had fallen, and by December, any serious Conventional resistance had been scattered into the more remote regions of the country while the enemy leadership fled over the mountainous border into Pakistan. Despite swift military success, the war in Afghanistan had only just begun. On 7th October 2001, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien announced that Canada would deploy its military in support of the American-led coalition 
that was expanding dramatically. The first appearance of the Canadian military was HMCS Halifax, which arrived in the region in early November. Further naval assets were deployed to the Arabian Sea, Persian Gulf, and Indian Ocean, conducting boarding and inspection missions, while also providing logistics support for the coalition. At peak operation, the Canadian naval contribution included 1,500 personnel and six warships, and by the end of the war, 18 of Canada's 20 surface vessels at the time and 4,000 sailors had been deployed to the region. Canadian pilots and ground crew were also involved. Canadian planes flew in supplies, conducted maritime surveillance, transported troops, and evacuated casualties. In December of 2008, the air contribution would solidify into Joint Task Force Afghanistan Air Wing based out of the Kandahar Airfield. This wing included Chinook and Griffin helicopters, Hercules transport planes, unmanned aerial vehicles, along with 450 personnel. Canada's largest contribution to Afghanistan was on the ground, and this began with Operation Apollo. Apollo was the name given to Canada's military contribution to the larger Operation Enduring Freedom, that was the U.S. Global War on Terror. In Afghanistan, this specifically meant helping the U.S. eliminate the last of the Al-Qaeda holdouts in the country's southern provinces. In December, Canada's Special Operations Force, JTF-2, arrived. Largely unknown at the time, these soldiers quickly proved their elite status, working alongside American Special Ops Forces, hunting Taliban and Al-Qaeda members. In January 2002, the Canadian presence increased with the arrival of 3rd Battalion Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, a reconnaissance squadron of the Lord Strathcona's horse, and a variety of combat service support elements. This battle group, as it was called, immediately set to work carrying out a number of difficult missions throughout the country. It was during this period that Canada suffered its first casualties when an American plane accidentally dropped a bomb on Canadian soldiers conducting a live-fire training exercise, killing four and wounding eight others. When Apollo wrapped up in October of 2003, the second phase of Canada's ground war began with what is known as Operation Athena Phase 1. Athena Phase 1 was the Canadian contribution to the International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, as it was known, in Kabul. Now, ISAF had been established by the UN Security Council back in 2001 and had been operating in and around the capital city of Kabul since December of that year. ISAF was NATO-led and sought to support the interim Afghan government by providing security and stability to the city and its outlying regions, while also training the Afghan National Security Forces. This wide jurisdiction of responsibility spoke to the complexities of the mission in Afghanistan. It was not going to be enough to simply defeat the enemy on the battlefield. State-building objectives had to be achieved to ensure that Afghanistan, broken after decades of war, could be rebuilt. By this point, Canadian soldiers were beginning a series of roughly six-month rotations, meaning Canadian soldiers were rotated out of the country every six months to be replaced by newly arriving ones. So, for instance, as Athena Phase 1 was kicking off, 
a new rotation of Canadian troops from 3rd Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment arrived, and they began thus conducting active operations. The first phase of Athena lasted until late 2005, and during this time, Canadian soldiers operating out of Camp Julian in Kabul conducted constant foot patrols throughout the area, as well as reconnaissance and surveillance missions in the outlying regions. They disrupted potential attacks, conducted raids, and uncovered numerous illegal weapon caches. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Despite the ever-present threat of danger, ISAF was effective in bringing security and stability to the region around Kabul. This was highlighted by the October 2003 visit of Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, three months after Canada officially opened its embassy in Kabul. Chrétien's visit included a meeting with Afghanistan Interim President Hamid Karzai and marked the first time in history a Canadian Prime Minister ever visited the ancient city of Kabul. The most significant achievement during this period, however, was the successful holding of Afghanistan's first-ever democratic election. This was in October 2004. An election that could not have been held had security not been brought to the region. In mid-2005, as part of Canada's whole-of-government approach to Afghanistan state-building, Ottawa deployed a strategic advisory team to Kabul. This was a multi-agency team made up of military personnel and civilians sent to support and advise the government of Afghanistan. And this is a very clear and real example of how complex the situation was in the country. To repeat myself, it was not enough to defeat the enemy on the battlefield. That had to be done while at the same time the state, the government, was being built up to survive on its own. Folks, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time or even on a monthly basis, and Patreon does the same. So if you want to donate 50 bucks and that's it, great, do it on PayPal. That's awesome. If you want to donate a dollar or two bucks every episode or a dollar a month or five bucks a month, both PayPal and Patreon also allow you to do that safely and securely. We survive exclusively on your donations and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. And as well, on our Facebook page, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other platforms, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So please don't be shy, and thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Now at the same time that 
Canada was increasing its presence in the region with the strategic advisory team, ISAF began extending its operational jurisdiction over most of the country. And Canadian soldiers were going to be a part of this. And they were going to be sent to the extremely volatile province of Kandahar. The redeployment to Kandahar province, now known as Operation Athena Phase 2, marked the third and most deadly phase of Canada's ground war in the country. In February 2006, a battle group consisting of headquarters, infantry who were now drawn from 1st Battalion, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, Canadian artillery, which would be used in battle for the first time since the Korean War, combat engineers, and armored reconnaissance vehicles all began conducting a wide range of aggressive counterinsurgency operations against a number of Taliban-controlled villages. Contact with the enemy was frequent, and firefights were a regular occurrence. During this first rotation, the Canadian battle group, utilizing their light armored vehicles, traveled extensively to every corner of the province, asserting ISAF's presence and encountering the enemy more than a hundred times while engaging in 50 serious firefights. Along with this battle group, Canada also took responsibility for the Kandahar Provincial Reconstruction Team. The PRT combined the resources and expertise of the Canadian forces with civilian agencies, such as the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, the Canadian International Development Agency, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and even the Correctional Service of Canada. The mandate for the PRT was to foster security through the mentoring and training of the Afghan army and police, while also promoting infrastructure development within the province and strengthening local governance, specifically in the areas of justice and corrections. The PRT's responsibilities were thus wide-ranging. The team had a Canadian Forces component. This provided security for its civilian personnel and for its projects. Meanwhile, the other agencies engaged in a wide variety of roles. They engaged with local government leaders. They helped invest in infrastructure projects like the Dalla Dam, irrigation projects, or even the refurbishment of schools and polio vaccinations to children. The Correctional Service of Canada provided mentoring at Kandahar's Sarposa Prison, while the RCMP personnel provided mentoring and advice for Afghan police. While there were some fairly serious organizational challenges in the first two years of the PRT being under Canadian control, it was nonetheless an integral contributor to the overall mission in Kandahar province. Yet, security challenges persisted. When spring came, reinforcements for the insurgency started to trickle in through the porous Afghan-Pakistan border and growing numbers of enemy found support from disaffected clans and narcotic gangs throughout the province. By that summer, it was clear that the Canadians were in fact facing a buildup of insurgents around the Green Belt. This was a fertile belt of farmland and villages southwest of Kandahar City. Particularly concerning were efforts by the Taliban to create a stronghold in Pashmool. This was a collection of villages on the west bank of the Argandab River, which contained a mosque said to be where the Taliban first organized back in the 1990s. Pashmool was the center of the Panjway district, 
which was the spiritual heartland of the Taliban. This was not just a symbolically important place, but also strategically important, because from here, the enemy could dominate the Green Belt and threaten the all-important Highway 1, which connected Kandahar to the broader countryside. Numerous Canadian efforts were made to eliminate the enemy presence here, and fierce firefights were frequent. Now, despite aggressive Canadian patrolling, the enemy was growing confident in their ability to hold Pashmul and beat back ISAF forces. There was, of course, a propaganda element to this. The longer the insurgents remained, the more effective they were at showing local Afghans that the new NATO-backed Afghanistan government was unable to secure its own country. It was clear that a major offensive was needed to root out the growing insurgency in Pashmul, and this set the stage for Operation Medusa. Now, Operation Medusa was one of the larger Afghanistan offensives that Canadians participated in. It was launched on 3rd September and wrapped up by September 12th, and it saw ISAF forces successfully clear the insurgents out of Pashmul. Now, while the Canadians did suffer killed and wounded, the enemy body count was 512, and most commanders estimate that it was closer to somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 enemy killed. Medusa was a tactical success, but strategically, the Taliban were still a threat within the province. The enemy was regrouping in an area known as the Horn of Panjway, to the southwest of Pashmul. With enemy reinforcements and supplies continually arriving from Pakistan, a new series of operations now had to be conducted to establish an ISAF presence in the villages making up this new, growing insurgent base. Oftentimes, the Canadians would spearhead a successful clearing operation in conjunction with their ISAF allies, frequently supported by or cooperating with the Afghan National Army. Now, while the Canadians were almost always successful in pacifying villages, problems came afterwards when the Canadians passed the region over to the Afghan National Police to provide a more permanent security presence. The problem was the ANP struggled to provide this effectively. They lacked the proper training, they carried inadequate equipment, and suffered from widespread corruption, which often alienated the local population whose cooperation was so crucial in countering the insurgency. Time and again, the Canadians cleared an area, passed it over to the Afghan police, only to have to return in force later as the insurgents filtered back in. Thus, fighting in and around Kandahar and throughout the province reflected a deadly game of whack-a-mole. As Canadian soldiers cleared one area, insurgents popped up in another, often an area only recently pacified by the same Canadians. Even when the Canadians won, quote-unquote won, the conventional phase of any fighting, they then were forced to deal with a longer, more drawn-out, unconventional phase. Improvised explosive devices, ambushes, targeted assassinations of sympathetic village leaders, attacks on police stations were just some of the ways the insurgents continued their fight. Now, in 2006, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, fresh off of his election victory, made support of the Afghan mission a hallmark of his administration. Under Harper, defense spending rose, new equipment was purchased, 
recruiting for the Canadian forces was expanded, and Harper committed $1 billion in aid to Afghanistan's reconstruction. The Prime Minister wanted to extend the mission beyond its originally set end date, which was supposed to be February 2009. And to do this, he convened a committee called the Independent Panel on Canada's Future Role in Afghanistan. And this was led by John Manley, who was a former Liberal Minister of Foreign Affairs and Deputy Prime Minister. In early 2008, the Manley Report, as it came to be called, was released. And this surprised the Canadian public. Instead of confirming the widespread belief that the mission was going well, the Manley Report identified that, in fact, southern Afghanistan had become more destabilized over the past year and the best way to combat this was to increase the NATO presence in the volatile regions of the country. In particular, the Manly Report stated that the CF mission, the Canadian Forces mission in Kandahar, should continue only if another 1,000 NATO troops were sent to reinforce them. The Manly Report also identified a desperate need for attack helicopters and unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, for surveillance purposes. The Harper government agreed to follow these recommendations. The Manley Report also put NATO on notice, though. The Canadians were not going to continue taking the brunt of offensive operations in Kandahar if they were not going to receive the support they needed. Now, the Americans had actually come to the same conclusion, that more troops were needed. And in early 2009, President Barack Obama committed 20,000 more troops to the country. This meant that the Canadians would now be receiving their much-needed ground reinforcements. At the same time, though, discussions over the conclusion of the Afghanistan mission were becoming more and more frequent back in Ottawa. And it was thus in early October of 2009, in a political compromise with the liberal opposition, that Prime Minister Stephen Harper announced that Canada's combat mission would come to an end in 2011. The next month, President Obama announced a further 30,000 American soldiers would be sent to Afghanistan, and this surge meant that by 2010, coalition forces would have the manpower to effectively impose ISAF stability throughout southern Afghanistan with particular focus on the strategically important Kandahar province. All the while that this is going on, Canadian counterinsurgency operations continued on a regular basis throughout the Kandahar region right up to the end of Canada's combat mission in the country. This end came in July of 2011, when Task Force Kandahar was handed over to the U.S. 4th Infantry Division, which concluded Canada's nine years of combat. From this point onwards, Canada entered the fourth phase of its time in Afghanistan, and that was as part of Operation Attention. Operation Attention was the NATO training mission of Afghan National Security Forces in Kabul, Mazar-e-Sharif, and Herat. Whereas the Canadian forces' presence in Kandahar peaked at nearly 2,500 personnel, the CF presence was now reduced to about 950, along with 45 police officers. 
This final phase was a non-combat one, and it was focused on improving the quality of the Afghan National Security Forces, providing guidance to Afghan leaders, delivering humanitarian aid, and helping to build infrastructure. Canada was the second largest contributor to this crucial mission, with the goal that Afghanistan could govern itself effectively while providing for its own security, especially, and obviously, with an eye towards the future reduction of coalition forces in the country. This phase was wrapped up in 2014, and by March of that year, the last of Canada's soldiers left the country. Between 2001 and 2014, 40,000 Canadians served in theatre. Over 2,000 were wounded, a number of them psychologically. 109 decorations for military valour were awarded, while 158 Canadian soldiers made the ultimate sacrifice in the longest war in Canadian history. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in and stay cool.